Now you follow in your copies as I read to you the oh, 16 and a half verses of 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. went. The messengers returned to the king and said to them, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty, men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on the knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. We come this morning to a new book, a new king, but the same old problem. You'll notice um, that you're reminded um, in in verse 1 that Ahab is dead. He died, as you may recall, uh, in a battle at Ramoth-Gilead, where uh, God uh, 
directed a, what the text says, a random soldier with a random arrow and directed it into the crevice in his scale armor, using both of those as a stroke of judgment on Ahab, and Ahab died. Well, now we have a new king, as Second Kings opens. A new king whose name is Ahaziah. He is the son of Ahab. Uh, his mother is Jezebel. And um, because uh, he was the, uh, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, he would have been exposed to several things that his father had, um, had experienced. Interestingly, the, the book of 1 Kings closes with a brief but very complete description of Ahaziah's character. If you still got your Bibles open... Look at the last three verses of First Kings, because there you get a description of Ahaziah. And it says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. Here we go. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Now, all of that, ladies and gentlemen, leads me to the first point that I, I want you to observe from this story this morning. I want you to notice that this story, one of the things that this story is teaching us is the remarkable hardness of the uh, unregenerate human heart. That's one of the lessons that's contained in this story. The remarkable hardness of the unregenerate human heart. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Because he was the son of Ahab, he would have witnessed some of the things that his father had experienced. For instance, remember back in 1 Kings 17 when Elijah comes to him and says, um, no rain for three years. All this running battle that takes place between his father and Elijah. Ahaziah is a witness to all this. He watches three years of famine unfold in his native land as a result of a prophet who said, thus says the Lord. But not only that, he would have also seen the slaughter of 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, if, he had, if, he were, if he wasn't there, he's, his dad certainly would have told him about it. And then... He would have also seen when Micaiah, this, in the last, last Sunday, we talked about Micaiah the prophet, who, um, who predicted his father's death at the Battle of Ramoth Gilead. And he would have seen that those words came to pass exactly. He would have seen all that. And so what does the story tell us he does? Where does he go to, um, Find advice. Well, instead of learning from his father's mistakes and, and becoming wise. No, no. No, no. He follows in his father's footsteps. And, and provokes the Lord to anger just like his father had done. Now, as this book opens, Second Kings, add to all that this. We're told in verse 1 that Moab is in rebellion. Moab was a vassal state that 
that had served Israel since the time of David. They sent tribute every year, but not anymore. Moab is in rebellion. And then, and then on top of that, the, 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 he fell through a roof. <laughs> he's, he's got broken bones all over his body. And so, who do you see him turning to? Who does he seek for counsel? Not Yahweh. He sends some messengers to go to Baal Zebub to find out whether he's going to survive. Now, just one other example of the hardness of the unconverted human heart. <laughs> this old story about the 50 soldiers. Is that not remarkable? He gets angry discovering that Elijah has predicted his death. And so he sends 50 soldiers and the captain to go arrest Elijah. And they are consumed. They're slaughtered. So that makes him matter. So he sends another 50. Who are also slaughtered. And so now what does he do? Oh, he does the very next wise and logical and reasonable thing to do. He sends 50 more. (laughs) Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen... There is no extreme to which the unregenerate human heart will go in its opposition and its confrontation with God. You see, not only does sin make your heart hard, it makes you crazy. And the more you sin, the crazier you get. You know, sin is a slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody becomes wicked suddenly. It starts slow, and then it picks up speed, and then sooner or later you find that you've lost touch with reality. You're just downright irrational. At the very least, this man, Ahaziah, has real political problems. Moab is in rebellion. He also has some pretty serious health problems. He's facing his own death. He fell through a roof. And yet notice what he does. He turns to Baal, and then he picks a fight with God's prophet. How insane is that? You know, ladies and gentlemen, really, the right word is not insane. The right word is hard. So hard that it is dead to all spiritual things. Guys, just a couple of observations and maybe applications. You you do know, don't you, that apart from the work of regeneration performed sovereignly by the Holy Spirit, apart from that, all of us have hearts like this. If you sit here this morning, apart from regeneration, apart from faith in Christ, apart from that, your heart is this hard This is what our hearts used to look like. If I could say that just a bit differently, the only reason that you and I love these things and love the things that we do, the only reason that you and I even have a desire to live a life that displays love for Jesus 
is because God the Holy Spirit gave us a new heart. Um, That's an event that the New Testament calls the rebirth. And if you sit here this morning, ladies and gentlemen, as a lover of this Jesus, you're a lover of this Jesus because you've been given. You've had that hard one exchanged for a soft one. The, um, The heart that you used to have was this stupid. It was this wicked. It was this insane. It was this hard. And yet God in his kindness, his sovereign kindness, has exchanged your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. And you know, remarkably, even after getting a new heart, even after this whole new start given to us by the rebirth, sin is still attractive to us. It's um, the result of the ravages of the fall, ladies and gentlemen. But but the other observation I want you to see in, in this... Guys, if you are presently experiencing some kind of, um, oh, I don't know, difficulty, if things aren't going the way you particularly like them to go, you need to know this, that in the midst of whatever it is that you're experiencing, God is putting his finger on your hard heart. He is putting his finger on your idol or idols. And and you can respond to this thing that you're experiencing in a couple of ways. You can respond like Ahaziah did. This is the wrong way to respond. The, The unbelieving heart responds to God putting his finger on my idols. He responds something like this. He gets harder. He gets dumber. He gets, he loses touch with reality more and more. Or there's another way to respond, and it's illustrated for you in this in this third captain uh, of verse 13 and following. See, if you're a Christian, guys, the, the, uh, this, this third captain gives us a pretty good model as to how we're supposed to respond when God has put his finger on my hard heart, on, on my idols. There is a, a display of humility here. There is a request for mercy um, please respect my life, he says. Uh, God, what is it that you want me to know? What is it that you want me to hear? What is it that you've got your finger on, God? That's the right approach, folks. So this sick bed, whatever it is that you may find yourself on presently, whatever that thing is for you, it becomes a chance for us to move back towards the Heavenly Father. In fact, that's why God sent it. Guys, um, God refuses to let people that he loves give their lives to things that simply don't matter. He refuses to stand idly by and watch us waste a life on things that won't and can't satisfy. He, he, he will not stand, he will not remain silent while we build our lives on what, on what the Takaville called, he called them incomplete joys. That is, that, that we give our lives to something other than God as our ultimate thing. It's an incomplete joy. 
And so he will not stand idly by while we waste the life given to an incomplete joy. And so he orders a set of circumstances and puts his finger on the thing that is maybe one among many, but the incomplete joy. Guys, there's a right way to respond to this difficulty you're in, and there's a wrong way. The, the, um, the wrong way is illustrated by Ahaziah. The right way is illustrated by this captain of 50, number three. But how you respond to the present situation in which you find yourself, how you respond is pretty much determined by the life and the character that you had before this sickbed arrived. The life and the character that you had built before these circumstances hit. How you're responding to your present circumstance is dependent upon what kind of soul you've built prior to the sickbed. But you do see, ladies and gentlemen, that um, apart from the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, the human heart remains steadfastly opposed to everything godly. Now, the second thing that I want you to see, uh, the, the thing that I really think this story is all about, that really the central motif of this little story has to do with God's great displeasure, his great offense with idolatry. Did you see it? First of all, in, in verse 2, uh, you, you notice that Ahaziah sends his messengers to Baal-zebub. <clears throat> but I read you the last few verses of 1 Kings. Uh, the last verse of 1 Kings says, He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. Ahaziah falls through a roof. He's wondering whether he's going to live or not. And so he sends people to consult with Baal-zebub. You know that name, don't you? It means the Lord of the Flies. You remember that novel um, that was written, I guess, in the early 60s, won a Pulitzer Prize by William Golding called The Lord of the Flies? It was based on that term, Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub is a god in Ekron. It's a city in Philistia. He's a Phil- Philistine god. And so Baal-zebub um, is the god that uh, Ahaziah prays to. He wonders, am I going to be okay? Now, guys... In this story, did you see it repeated three times? Anytime when you're studying your Bible and you find something repeated three times, you got to understand that there's an emphasis being made here. And the emphasis of this story is this. Is there no God in Israel? He says it in verse 3, he says it in verse 6, he says it in verse 16. Wait a minute, Ahaziah. Is there no God in Israel? Why are you going there? The the Lord is provoked to anger because Ahaziah is consulting. He is appealing. He is leaning on another God. Do you understand that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you understand how God is provoked? When um, when someone gives their heart to something that ain't God, let me explain that, guys. I, I've explained this before, but I never tire of doing so. The Bible never apologizes 
for describing God as jealous. Now, some of us think that's rather unbecoming. Jealousy. And we, we have a hard time swallowing that, that God is jealous. But, but let, me, let me try to explain that. And I, again, I'll say it again. Folks, any relationship that is designed to be exclusive, jealousy is not only permitted, it is demanded. Did you get that? In any relationship that is designed to be exclusive, Jealousy is not only permitted, it's demanded. If I could illustrate. Some of you are sitting here this morning having tasted the, the, the real trauma of divorce, having gone through a divorce, because your spouse violated, ignored that principle. Let me say it again. Any relationship that is designed to be exclusive not only permits jealousy, but demands it. Marriage is this sacred trust. It's a sacred relationship, folks, between a male and a female that is designed to permit no suitors. All affection between the two of you is limited to the two of you. But when that affection is given away to a third party, an earthquake, a marital earthquake occurs, which often results in a divorce. I love to say it this way. You show me a man who can find his wife in the arms of another man and not get jealous. And I will show you a man who does not love his wife. Ladies and gentlemen, jealousy is intolerable in my relationship to you. Because this relationship was never designed to be exclusive. But jealousy is not only permitted, but demanded in my relationship to Susie. Because this relationship is designed to be exclusive. Now, so is my relationship to the living God. Designed to be exclusive. And God does not sit idly by while I give my heart and my affections to something or someone else. And when I do, the provoked and jealous God says, Is there no God in Israel? Why, why do you, why do you turn to Baal? Why do you look to something other than me? And then he designs a set of circumstances. And through those circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, he puts his finger on the idol. Ladies and gentlemen, I've said this to you before. We are on the brink of wasting a recession. Do you not see, ladies and gentlemen, that at least part of this whole thing 
that has cost many of us our jobs. Part of it has to do with our idols. Gang, what, what is the strange allure of idolatry? What is the hold that it has over the human heart? Why is it that God is, is so easily forgotten, even for Christians? Why is it that we who know that Jesus Christ died in our place and died in our sins, how is it that we can forget Him and His mercy so readily, so quickly, so easily? Well, the answer to that question is pretty, pretty complex, but at least part of the answer is this, ladies and gentlemen. It is our love for the seen as opposed to the unseen. We are absorbed in the interests and the pleasures of this life. And so in the language of Jesus, we lay up treasures on earth and not treasures in heaven. And while we do, the provoked God says, Is there no God in Israel? Why, why, do you, why do you try to get from your career what only I can give you? Why, why do you try to get from money what only I can give you? Why do you try to get from your family what only I can give you? You know, guys, um, you know that before Gracie Van started, I... Um, I did singles for six years. I did the ministry with singles, and I loved it. But I watched single men and women turn marriage into an absolute bail. If I can only be married, if I can only have kids, if I can only be promoted, if I can only buy this, if I can only be married. Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at one of the most happily married men you'll ever meet. But marriage is not enough. It is not the thing on which I build my worth. Guys, has, has God been unkind to us? Has He neglected us somehow? Has He, has he ever lied to us? Did he forsake us along the way somewhere? Folks, is there a God in Ekron that's better? Is there a God in Ekron that's more faithful, more true? Can that God save you? Can he forgive your sin? Can he... Um, can he instruct you in a path of righteousness? Is there no God in Israel? Folks, um, much of our difficulty, much of our undoing occurs because we give our affections to that which is not God and then we wonder why am I so empty? 
why is life so bland and tasteless? Have you heard that song by Sugarland? I I was I was in a moment of insanity, and I was listening to Kicks 106 the other day, and, <laughs> and this uh, this DJ said something about um, uh, this is her favorite Sugarland song, and um, and it's called Something More. I ought to play it. There's got to be something more, more than this. I need a little more, a little less pain, a little more bliss. Something like that. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, there's got to be something more. I give my affections to that which is not God, and then I wonder, why is life so unsatisfying? Why is my world caving in? Why am I so unhappy? Is there no God in Israel? Guys, we live as practical atheists. We we live more like Ahaziah than we do Captain Number Three. We we believe in an existence of God, but He has nothing to do with me. And so we run to Ekron. We run to the career. We run to money. We run to family. And so a faithful God in some set of circumstances puts his finger on our idols and asks us, is there no God in Israel? Some roof caves in around us. And through it, God is wooing and drawing His beloved children back to Himself. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, where did you turn when your roof caved in? To Ekron? To your portfolio? To pleasure? To alcohol? To another man? To success? To your kids? Is there no God in Israel? And folks, lest you think that only a non-Christian could do something this wicked, I've showed you this before. You don't need to turn, but I'll just read it to you. But this afternoon, do you know what the last verse of 1 John is, what it says? The last verse of the book of 1 John. You remember John, the... um, the beloved disciple who writes to God's people. And the last verse of 1 John goes like this. My little children, keep yourself from idols. Guys, he's writing that to us. To us who are so benighted that we would think 
that something or someone else besides him would ever fill that gaping hole that exists in our hearts. You've heard that famous quote from Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You know how those things stick around for centuries, ladies and gentlemen? Because they're true. And there's many a restless heart in this room this morning. And they'll never rest until we get out of Ekron and go back to the God of Israel. One other thing and I'm done. One other thing about this story that I want you to take away. Baal-zebub is, oddly enough, mentioned in the New Testament. Actually, it's mentioned a couple of times, but they're in a very similar story. The one that I want to read you just a little bit above is, is in Matthew chapter 12. And oddly enough, even more odd than that, Baal-zebub is associated with Jesus. In fact, Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of being his agent. This is in Matthew chapter 12. Let me read you three verses. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Jesus is... Accused of being in concert with Beelzebub. And you know why? Because he, um, he, uh, he, he, he healed a man of some demons. He healed a sick man. And the Pharisees, in essence, accused Jesus of, of the sin of Ahaziah. What they're saying, what they're asking is, is there no God in Israel, Jesus, that you should, that you should Cast out demons in the name of Beelzebub? And then Jesus goes on to explain himself and says, No, 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 guys, you got this all wrong. Satan can't cast out Satan. You remember that story, don't you? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so it's not, it's not by Satan that I cast out the devil. And then he says in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons... then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You understand what he's saying? He says, no, 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 it's not, it's not that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, by the finger of God, if I, if I do that, then what that proves is that the kingdom of God has come upon you. It proves that there is a God in Israel And I am he. I am the God who comes down. I'm the God who draws near. I'm the God that takes on flesh. I'm the God that gets in your face. I'm the God that that pries into your marriage and meddles with your checkbook and rebukes your mistreatment of the poor. I'm the God who, who refuses... 
who politely refuses to recuse myself from human affairs. I am the God who has taken on flesh and offers himself in Christ as the payment for your sin. And guys, um, lest you think that this fire business that I read about in First Kings one, uh, Second Kings one, lest you think this fire motif from this fire from heaven stuff is confined to the Old Testament, the fire that consumed those soldiers, remember that? What you see in Second Kings one is just a small and imperfect symbol of what will come later in a in an ultimate and final judgment. Paul says this in Second Thessalonians. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the impunishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. That is not a, an Old Testament image. It's an everlasting image. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a God in Israel. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only name given under heaven by which any of us will ever be saved. Don't run from him. Run to him. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that um, you are jealous for our affections, that your people who have been bought and paid for with a price are people who... who um, who are to give all their affections to the God who performs such a saving wonder in Christ Jesus. So now, Father, stir us up from, from our foolishness as of looking to the wrong gods and might we extract those affections and give them to the place where they belong. And Father, if you've brought somebody here this morning who has not yet met the Savior of ours, might they find this morning that there is a God to whom they can run. A God that they, that they do not need to dread. Because this God is willing, willing to forgive in Christ Jesus. Make this the beginning of a, of a new life. Like you did for so many of us in days past. Father, use Gracie Van to announce and proclaim the great wonder of a salvation by grace through faith alone. And might you open ears to hear that. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.